Hello, I'm Philip Stoughton. I'm here with Sean Dubravac from IPC. Sean is their chief economist and lead researcher. Sean, you recently put out a, um, a piece of research following some questions you asked the industry about the component shortages. Pretty big problem we're, we're seeing at the moment and one that seems to look like it's going to rumble on for quite some time. Just run me through what you think the key challenges are facing the industry right now as a result of the short shortages. What we're seeing is a historic challenge. I would argue the supply chain is optimized to deal with disruptions and they're constantly reconfiguring in order to, to resolve issues that arise in the supply chain. But what we're seeing is uh, unheralded historic proportions. Uh, we've, we just have massive dislocations throughout the supply chain. Uh, it, it starts with strong demand. And we've had extremely strong demand for durable goods. If you look in the United States, spending on durable goods is up about 25% from pre-pandemic levels. So as we went into quarantine and as we've been battling the, the uh, pandemic, we've been partaking in a lot less services, less restaurants, theaters, movies out. And, and as a result, that has enabled us to, to spend more, allocate more on physical goods. Uh, so that's the, the first dynamic is that there's just been very strong demand. And, and that's kind of the, the dichotomy of what we're experiencing. Manufacturers love that order flow is strong. Yeah. Uh, but conversely, they're dealing now with a lot of, uh, a, a lot of challenges. And it, it really started early in the pandemic, some of those challenges. First with transportation, mm. uh, air freight, as you know, about half of our air freight capacity is in the belly hold of commercial airlines. So when we stopped flying international flights, we cut back on the availability of air cargo uh, quite significantly. And that's especially important on any, obviously, Asian routes, Asia to, to Europe, Asia to the US, uh, cut back a lot of uh, air cargo capacity on those routes yeah. when we stopped flying passenger flights. And, and you remember that we saw at the time airliners starting to fly just cargo only flights so they could provide that belly hold. So that was kind of the first big challenge. And that remains a challenge today, both hmm. uh, with containerized cargo, what's going over the water, as well as uh, air freight. Prices yeah. are up, capacities are constrained. And, and so those continue to be a challenge. Yeah, and we're hearing three, four, five hundred percent increase in price for um, for shipping, and then we're also hearing stories of seventy container ships queued up at the port of Los Angeles trying to get unloaded, and stuff taking four weeks to get across the ocean, and another four weeks to um, before it gets from the ship to the truck. Um, that's a pretty serious problem to add on to, um, you know, to a supply chain disruption. I'm really encouraged that you say that supply chains are designed for disruption. My sense in the last year is that some have and some haven't um, been able to cope with disruption as well as each other, and some aren't as digitally enabled as perhaps they could be, so they don't have that visibility. You mentioned that companies are um, are excited to, to have the extra order flow, which is great, but it really skews the book to bill that you guys published, for example, because bookings are up, billings are are often driven down because they've got a lot of a lot of stock on hand. That's really skewing the numbers, and it's hard to see what's happening right now. It's definitely true, as you mentioned. Order flow is up, shipments are uh, curtailed, 
early on, it was curtailed because demand was so strong. Uh, more recently, it's being curtailed because the availability of components and parts has, yeah. has uh, been more difficult. And so you do end up with a, a, a skewed view of the book to bill. And we're looking at, uh, again, if you consider IPC's book to bill, just a historic aberration in what we normally see. We're looking at like a five and, and six standard deviation type event. And this is a, a very rare event mm. to see things like this. Typically, you know, maybe you've got a month lag between order flow and shipments out. And uh, we're, we're seeing that lengthen. And again, part of it is what's happening further upstream. So one of the things we asked about in, in the research is that uh, what does lead time to look like? And we saw a significant portion of manufacturers globally reporting that lead times have extended significantly. Uh, a, a large percentage of those respondents say that they've been pushed out eight weeks or more. So mm. you're dealing with some very long lead times. Uh, and if you can get the components and the products and the raw materials you need, you're paying a much higher price. So we saw that material costs are up significantly almost across the board. Every firm reported that the material costs are up. It was the, uh, the most uniformed answer of anything we asked. All agreed that material costs are up. And so as a result, you've got material costs up, you've got longer lead times, which is causing you to have to hold on to components longer. You're not mm. able to move them through your facilities as, as quickly. Uh, we're seeing pressure on, on profit margins. And I think that's the next great challenge for companies is they will have to figure out how do we pass these costs forward or what other changes can we make in order to regain profit margins? Now, as we looked at the outlook, as we looked forward, we did see that uh, in aggregate manufacturers that we spoke with expected profit margins to improve. So there does seem to be some indication that uh, we will see prices increase as manufacturers and, and the broad electronic supply chain tries to move those cost increase forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think the whole pricing thing is really interesting. It's almost, we've got to the point with the global supply chain where some things feel like they're almost too cheap. Um, sometimes I'll buy electrical goods here and I'm just blown away that they're manufactured, boxed and delivered from Asia to Australia for the price that they are delivered. And that doesn't seem practical or sustainable or or any of the above so that's that's curious you mentioned the challenge of of profit margins um and that's if you look specifically at the ems in, industry there's a big issue there and the challenge of how that gets passed through to brands and what they have in their contracts and what they've negotiated there it really puts a bit of a strain on those relationships doesn't it right now it's difficult to you know, those that have really strong partnerships are perhaps doing well. But I think I've I've heard cases where OEMs are saying to EMSs, hey, this is your problem, not ours. Um, but from EMS is that the component prices of some components are going up five or six fold. Do you see that as something that's really, really testing that that business model, that relationship between the EMS and the OEM? It's definitely testing the relationships and it will require changes in order for some of these relationships to be ongoing, to be long-term uh, viable relationships for both parties. Mm -hmm. There will always be the case that OEMs will uh, attempt to uh, 
you know, put pricing pressure on their suppliers. And that, that happens throughout the whole supply chain. And, you know, it, it isn't uh, to an extent unreasonable. It's the same thing we as consumers do to retailers wanting to, you know, get more for less. And so they're, yeah. the, pr- the pressure starts with the, the very last consumer and moves all the way up the supply chain. But at the same time, to keep these businesses viable, uh, they will have to be concessions and they will have to, to work with each other. And, and the OEMs ultimately will have to, you know, they're getting pressure from retailers, so they'll have to increase their prices as well. Uh, you know, the good thing is there's been a tremendous amount of, of stimulus here in the U.S. Obviously, incomes are up significantly. Household net worth is at historic levels. So there is the, the ability to pay. And thus far, consumers seem willing to pay in the face of, of higher prices. So I think there will be the ability to pass some of these prices, uh, these price increases on. But mm. uh, to your point, it does require uh, a re-vetting of that relationship and yeah. uh, you know reconfiguring that relationship. Yeah, there's some real renegotiation going on. Yeah. There. So let's let's explore some of the some of the ways EMS companies, but also brands are looking at to, to resolve the issue temporarily rather than long-term solutions. You talked about um, lead times growing by seven, eight, nine weeks. We're hearing some instances where it's 20 weeks plus. Uh, and then they look at respinning designs. Are you seeing much of that? Did have you heard much of that from, from brands that they're actually saying, hey, we can only use the components that are available. Let's let's manufacture with those. Uh, definitely. I think businesses are looking at that. Clearly, you see it from the auto sector as they've dealt with a chip shortage and, and then a broader shortage. They've looked at what can we do to continue to ship this vehicle while this one component is in, in short supply. And so they're looking to uh, you know make those adjustments. And I, I think likewise, other companies will look to make those adjustments as well. Um, even things as simple as Lowering the packaging size and weight can mm-hmm. improve profit margins because transportation costs are high. So I think you'll see them look to making even small changes like that. How do I change the way I ship this in order to better optimize in, in the current environment? Yeah. And then the other thing we see in this environment, and it happens every time there's a shortage or a disruption in the supply chain, people go out into what you and I probably call the gray market, or they go to... Uh, brokers or resources yep. that they haven't perhaps vetted as well as they could or haven't regularly used. And we get this high risk of counterfeit or maybe components that haven't been stored as well as they could be. Is that something you see as one of those kind of knock-on um, underlying challenges from this issue? We're definitely seeing companies go to the broker market as they mm. seek supply. And you know, distributors are also trying to help their customers. I'm seeing a few things that that look a little different than they might have in the past. There's always the concern in these type of environments of double booking and double orders yeah. as companies go out to more suppliers to, you know, to try to get access to the components that they need. I'm hearing from, from some that uh, distributors have made commitments to only satisfy the orders of their existing uh, customers, so they're not taking on essentially new customers, and so that's one way that they're trying to protect their, uh, you know, their that partnership. I, I'm also hearing uh, stories that they're looking at what they bought 
a year ago or two years ago, and they're allowing for maybe some marginal increase. But because there's allocations taking place, I think you're seeing them, uh, you know, be be a little more cognizant of that. And so they're only allowing for a, a certain amount of growth or in some cases, no growth at all in orders in order to guard against um, stockpiling, to guard against double booking, other things like that. Yeah, I think we have a stockpiling and double booking problem. And we'll come back to that because I think when we look at the solution and timeline, that might be an issue as we as we get to that timeline. How long do you expect this problem to go? And what do you think the solution looks like? What's going to change that's going to um, allow more components and allow easing in the supply chain? I think there are a, a couple of things that could play out. I think what we were anticipating was that the back half of the year would see the economies open more widely. Consumers would go back to some of the services that they had foregone. And as a result, there'd be a little less demand for mm. some of the physical goods that, you know, and durable goods that we've been buying. Uh, that hasn't quite materialized as we had anticipated. Obviously, Europe had a hard time getting back up and running and had a couple of, uh, you know, re set ins there as they kind of mm-hmm. moved back into quarantine. The US looked like they were they were set to rise. They obviously had early vaccination rates, but that wasn't sustained across the whole country. And then they had a, uh, a reemergence of COVID thanks to the Delta variant, which caused people mm-hmm. to, to move away from some of those services. So you know, one piece that would bring this relief is a little bit of uh, relaxation in, in the demand. I think that will happen, that will yeah. materialize, especially with some of the the durable goods that have longer lifespans, uh, you know, there's high demand for autos today, but how many cars are we going to buy in a you know short period of time? So that will eventually play out. And then, you know, you mentioned one potential scenario, and it's looking at how do we take advantage of the resources that we do see available to us? Can we change a product? Can we introduce a different product? Uh, you know, per, perhaps that helps as well. Uh, my my sense is that the broader shortages and other constraints on the supply chain will continue to uh, to be a pretty serious narrative, at least for the next year. Uh, yeah. We you know we asked specifically about the semiconductor shortages and other shortages in our research, and you had a significant portion that say it will be the second half of 2022 or beyond when yeah. this is finally resolved. And I think that, that that's uh, you know, I think that's a good estimate right now that it will definitely stay with us at least for the next year. Yeah. Yeah. I did a, I did a very uh, rough and ready survey of um, my contacts on LinkedIn uh, using the LinkedIn polls. And it was clear that most thought well through 20, 2022 and some thought into 20, 2023, which was, um, is quite alarming in itself because it's a yeah it's a bit of a roller coaster ride for everybody at the moment. Um, do you think that when it does come back, you know I don't know whether as you say part of the solution is easing easing of um, easing of demand. We're putting on additional capacity for semiconductors, but we all know that takes a long long time. Um, 
You mentioned the risk of double ordering. You mentioned the risk of stockpiling, and we're hearing more about stockpiling in Asia than we are anywhere else. Do you think there's an issue where there could be an inventory overhang? We had a big tech wrecking in 2000, and I know it's a long time ago, and I know we didn't have the systems that we currently have, um, but inventory overhang was a huge issue then. It was a huge issue. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of companies put in the type of curbs that they've put in to, to try to, uh, you know, to resolve uh, potential overhang issues. Uh, mm. you, go, you take a look at the semiconductor industry. Uh, they've always had to just lower prices in order to clear yeah. out old inventory. I think what you're seeing them do is contractually repl- uh, require uh, bookings to be paid for, right? So they're not uh, they're they're tightening up the contracts that they're yeah. using. Some some areas you're seeing even some prepayments and other things like that. So I think they're tightening up the ability to uh, to to not pay for an order. Um, the other dynamic is you know in some instances the OEMs are buying capacity and it's for proprietary products that can't easily be moved to a different part of the supply chain. So consider a company like Apple who has their M1 chip. We might have an excess inventory of M1 chips, but they're not going to end up with anybody but Apple, right? So it becomes uh, only Apple's uh, ability to work through that. The other thing I think that that gives me hope that we won't see major overhangs is that inventory levels right now are extremely low across almost every single category. And we're seeing a, a backlog of orders. And so even if demand were to halt very quickly... You still have inventory replenishing. You still have back orders. There's there's still a fair amount of work to keep manufacturers busy, and yeah. because lead times are longer, it's causing companies to uh, you know to place orders much earlier. And so I think we're going to have a, a much earlier signal, at least right now, of any yeah. you know potential downturn. Um, yeah. think, thinking about the inventory levels, I look at like automotives in North America. Typically, we have about two and a half months of inventory. Today, we're at like half a month of inventory. So rather than ha- having you know, 10 weeks of inventory, we have two weeks of inventory. So that it, even if demand were to slow quickly, there's still a lot of room to, to grow that inventory and to replenish that inventory. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. And do you think the industry is, or the supply chain is digital, digitally transformed enough to have the the visibility in it, it it needs that to be able to redact, react and adapt quickly? Uh, in, in short, no. I think that uh, that has improved significantly over the last 20 years. Hmm. And I think there is greater transparency in the supply chain. But I think we still have a long ways to go before we consider manufacturers and supply chains uh, digital natives, if you yeah. you know, if you will, I think th- that's a, a major opportunity for factories of the future. And IPC mm. is, is making big pushes in that area uh, specifically. As you connect factories, then you give greater information to those those factory owners, but you also then can move that information more quickly up or down the supply chain and, and provide real signals of what's happening. And so it, it isn't just connecting the factory, but it's also sharing that information outside of the factory. I think there's a lot of potential there that we have really yet to harness. 
Yeah, and you guys are doing a great job with standards around the digital twin and other things there that, that will help that story move forward. And, and you know, I, I think digital transformation has helped solve a lot of the problems through through the pandemic and uh, hopefully it will continue to do so. And hopefully this is, a, I think, not a catalyst to do it, but an, an accelerant in that process to get people along that road. Last question, which um, is maybe a big question rather than a small question. Do you think there are fundamental faults with the current global supply chain? You know, when I look at things like sustainability, I look at the length of supply chains, the the number of components that move around the world so many different t- times in terms of parts and sub-assemblies. Do we need to rethink some of the global supply chain for security reasons, for resilience reasons, for adaptability? I think that we do, but I also think that that is happening. And really, I think it, it is always happening. So as much as supply chains are optimized for disruption, uh, the disruption does provide new learning. And that mm-hmm. new learning is reincorporated into the supply chain. Sometimes it, it takes some time. But you know, another big factor here is the change in tastes and preferences of the, the consumer. So I mm-hmm. take a look at what's happening in the fashion market where we've really moved away from a spring line and a fall line, and things are, you know, weekly drops. If you just take yeah. a look at Nike and they have different model shoes that they're releasing every single day through their app. Now they can't really afford to have that on a boat for four weeks and then have it, you know, locked up in a a terminal somewhere. They need to be able to produce that relatively quickly, get it out to the consumer very quickly. And so I think they're already have rethought some of their supply chains about localizing some of it to the end market that they're serving, I think there's a, a lot more that will happen there. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that um, supply chains are optimized for their current environment, but the current environment is changing and the future environment will, most definitely will be very different than where we are today. And so that will require some changes. It, these will require investments, you know, and because some of these are long-lived assets, it takes some time for that that capital to be redeployed. As much as people talk about, oh, you know, people are picking up factories and moving them, it really isn't quite so simple or quite so way. easy. Yeah, and and the other great challenge that we picked up in our research is that uh, companies are reporting very strong uh, labor shortages and yeah. uh, and that dynamic. So that will also be an element. How are they going to respond to labor shortages? We we asked how they were responding thus far, and it's. You know, they're looking at uh, at higher salaries. They're looking at greater training and retention. Mm-hmm. They're looking at upskilling other workers. So there's some of that, but that will also have a major influence uh, on where we manufacture in the world and what we manufacture is the availability of skilled labor. And that, you know, the, the labor narrative is also changing the type of worker we need today Absolutely. and the type of worker we will need in, with the factory future are very different than the type of workers we had 50 years ago. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right there, Sean. And that feels like episode two. There's a whole debate around, you know, the role of automation in that argument, the role of education. And again, it's something that IPC works very hard in and does some amazing work. And we will park that one and discuss that one at a further date because that'll add another another half an hour to the show if I get into that. Sean, thanks for your time. Thanks for talking to me. As I mentioned before, big fan of your work, your books, the uh, 
the presentations we used to enjoy in the press gallery at CES. Um, so really appreciate what you're doing at IPC right now and what you're doing for the industry and appreciate you taking the time to chat to me today. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. It was great to join you and I look forward to our next conversation.